Hello, it's Friday, March the 18th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, it's nearly Mother's Day. Is being a mother the hardest job in the world, albeit the best job in the world? Did Martin Bashir's lies to Princess Diana convince her most loyal aide betrayed her, a fact she would have taken to her grave? Also, we're talking about will Britain act as a guarantor of Ukraine's future security against Russia if a peace deal is struck with Putin. But first, it's a scandal, frankly. P&O ferries sacking 800 staff without giving them any notice whatsoever and replacing them with cheaper agency staff. There's growing outrage over the behaviour of P&O ferries as 800 crew were sacked on Zoom with immediate effect to be replaced by cheap agency staff. Some workers are refusing to leave ships, uh, but the bosses sent in some security guards, some with handcuffs. Quite extraordinary in Britain in 2022. The government is now saying it was not told about this decision and it's reviewing all its contracts with P&O ferries and the unions say, with some justification, it marks a dark day for the shipping industry. I'm joined now by Robert Morton, who's a national officer with Unite, who represents many of the staff affected. Um, Robert, did you think this would could conceivably happen in Great Britain in 2022? Andrew, I didn't think it, it could happen the way it has happened. I'd just like to mention, if you don't mind, there was a horse run in a Hexham yesterday called Dubai Devils, and it won the race it was in. And Dubai Devils is exactly how I would describe P&O. The parent company is based in Dubai. Yes. The answer to your question, again, is that I didn't expect it to happen this way, but I put absolutely nothing past this company. Um, It's the worst company that I have dealt with in 25 years uh, as an officer for Unite the Union. Robert, what can you as a union do about it? Well... I represent members in Unite the Union, Andrew, and all of my members are actually port workers, are not affected at the moment. It's mainly the RMT union. However, having said that, I've been on the phone to my general secretary this morning, uh, Sharon Graham, and and we are now ramping up our our leverage departments. and, And what Sharon's told me, is that we will throw every single resource that we have as a union um, into fighting the Dubai Devils if, in fact, this is the start of attacking all of the staff. And I I actually think that it is. What about the fact that this company got quite a lot of furlough cash during the pandemic? Should they give that back? And I'm just looking at their profits for, for this company. Let's name them DP World. £638 million last year, and yet they say they have to sack all these staff because they're too expensive. Well, well, I, th- I think that you, you're of the same mind as I am at the moment. We, I'm, I'm still finding it incredulous, and I am aware of the profits that DP World made. Um, it, I, 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 well, you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm mind-boggled if there's such a phrase. Um, they make massive profits, and I'd just like to remind all, all of your listeners that, that these seafarers and, and the dock workers as well that are employed by P&O, they've kept the company afloat for the last two and a half years when we've suffered the uh, the COVID pandemic. Well, um, and, I, and you'll, you'll be aware of this video, um, the, the recruitment video they were using as recently as four months ago, talking about a job, take, get a job with P&O. It's not just a job, it's a career, it's a family. What sort yeah. of family behaves like yes. that? 
Well, the Adams family behave like that. Um, <laughs> it, it, def- it just shouldn't have happened. Um, I, 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 what I can guarantee those workers who are there now, who, who uh, I, I won't use the phrase I used to describe them, but these replacement workers will find that as soon as it's expedient and P&O can find a workforce on half of what these people, these replacements are getting now, they will be sacked by the family in the same way uh, as these people with 25, 30, 35 years uh, of experience with the company have been sacked. Just to go back to where we started, Robert, you've been in this trade a very long time. You've never known anything quite like it. I've I've never seen this happen before. Um, Andrew, I know what your political leanings are, but I, I... I would be absolutely staggered if even this government um, would allow this company to get away with it. Having said that, um, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister's been hopping around that part of the world just lately. I, I cannot believe for the life of me that government didn't know that this was happening. Well, that's interesting, because um, they've said in a, in a Downing Street briefing today, Robert, that they didn't know, and the de- yes, one of the yes. ministers out on the... Def- the defence, uh, the defence minister James Heapy doing the rounds today said it's grubby. I think it's shameful. De- definitely. We'll keep in touch with you on it because it's a hugely important story. That's Robert Morton, who's national officer with the Trade Union Unite, who's going to pile in to see what they can do to get this overturned. Britain and its international partners are said to be discussing giving guarantees about Ukraine's security if Putin's forces withdraw. And one of those guarantees could include possible military action in the event of another Russian invasion. I'm joined now by Colonel Richard Kemp, former chairman of COBRA and a former British Army commander in Afghanistan. Colonel Kemp, it does seem like the peace talks are beginning to move edge forward slowly. Is this the sort of deal you think that that could be dressed up by Putin as still a victory? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it could be if he decides to go along with it. And if Zelensky meets his demands, and his demands won't be easy for Ukraine, we know what they are pretty much. And it'll be very, it'll be probably harder for Zelensky to accept that after the destruction that's been wreaked on Ukraine than it will be for Putin to go along with it and to paint it as being a victory for him, which he undoubtedly will do. So I think it's a possibility. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say it's a particularly strong possibility right now but it's i think both sides are edging towards some kind of an agreement which will of course be uh, the defeat of ukraine effectively it won't be the defeat of the ukrainian army in the field but it will be the the defeat of ukraine as a sovereign country the part of the peace deal would be that he gets to keep the annexed ukraine the annexed crimea and the, and and the other parts that were taken in 2014 and of course nato he'd have to give up his nato deal what about the british involvement colonel kemp the united kingdom could be part of a, a protector i suppose that would be an international force would it be as part of a nato force as you understand well it? i think it's uh, it's very early days for for any possibilities like that but uh, you know obviously the, it could be simply a some kind of a treaty where Britain agrees to guarantee, or Britain as part of NATO perhaps agrees to guarantee Ukraine's freedom, although that didn't work out too well last time it was tried, because we, we're seeing the results today. If, we, if we're thinking about the deployment of a, some kind of a peacekeeping force into Ukraine from NATO, I think that would be something very, very hard for Putin to accept, and he probably would not accept it. And Equally, he would not accept, I don't think, Britain as a component of any other peacekeeping operation, for example, a UN peacekeeping operation. I, th- I think Britain has 
positioned itself so squarely behind Ukraine and against Russia in, in the days of this conflict that uh, Russia will still see, and, and uh, I'm sure well into the future, we'll see Britain as an enemy that could not be accepted as any kind of a, a peacekeeping component in a, in, in, a, in a force if it was uh, deployed. We talked about this war a, a week or so ago, Colonel Kemp. It's clearly still, um, the, it appears to be stalled, the advance on, on Kiev and, and the major cities, but the bombardment, of course, continues, which is wreaking terrible destruction on life, limb and morale, and let alone buildings. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's the, really the reason why President Zelensky is considering some form of Russian terms because he can see the devastation that's been imposed across Ukraine and how much more is to come. A lot of people are painting the Russians as effectively a force that has pretty much spent itself. I don't think that's true. I do know, I do know, as we all do, that Ukraine has imposed huge damage on the Russian forces, but there is still a lot more to come. And I think, you know, what we're witnessing at the moment is a, a reinforcement of Russia, including forces coming from outside Ukraine, from Russia. Some of their most elite forces seem to be being deployed now to replace the casualties and give them extra impetus in their offensive. So I think there's still quite a lot to come from Russia if it chooses to keep on attacking. And the only thing that will prevent that is really the capitulation by Zelensky along the terms that you pretty much described, yeah. which Russia demands. Real politique, they call it, don't they, Colonel Kemp? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that it will be quite a hard sell for Ukraine, for Ukrainian people having experienced such devastation. It'll be quite hard for Zelensky, I think, to sell this as being, you know, anything other than a complete capitulation to Russia, which in effect it will be, but uh, or would be if it happens. But, um, you know, I suppose Zelensky, and I don't think anyone outside Ukraine is in a position to pressure him, but, uh, you know, Zelensky's got to decide whether, uh, you know, accepting a reduction of Ukraine's sovereignty as a price for for keeping what remains of his country reasonably well intact. That's something he, he must decide, I think. Uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Colonel Kemp, just the final observation from you, if I could. Um, the valour, the bravery, the heroism of, of the Ukrainian people can't be overstated enough. Has it surprised you even how well they've withstood the barrage from the Russian troops? Yeah, it has. And it, and it really illustrates, I think, two factors in war that can prevail, at least to a certain extent, over uh, the, sh the kind of might that Russia has. And those two factors are, first of all, leadership. And I think had, had there been a lesser leader than Zelensky running Ukraine, uh, I suspect they would not have been able to sustain the fight as they have. Leadership is so important. And the other thing which is probably even more important is morale and the morale of, and, and fighting spirit of the Ukrainian soldiers and the, and the countrymen. We've got a, a large Russian force, which many, many of the soldiers there don't really understand why they're fighting, weren't told they were going to fight, and perhaps don't necessarily agree with the fight. But nevertheless, they, they're not fighting for their homeland. They're on an offensive operation, whereas the Ukrainians uh, are fighting for their families, their homeland, and their own lives. And that, that creates an enormous amount of morale, which is as I say, is probably the single most important factor in any war uh, as to whether, you know, I think, I think, I think actually the, the, the resistance that's been put up by U Ukraine has surprised probably everybody in the world, but most probably importantly, uh, Russia. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's some satisfaction in that, at least. That's Colonel Richard Kemp, former chairman of COBRA and former British Army commander. Thanks for joining us. 
The BBC has agreed to damages for the former private secretary of Diana, Prince of Wales, for the harm caused to him over Martin Bashir's now infamous Panorama interview. The 1995 interview was subject to an investigation that found Bashir used fake documents to gain access to Diana. Patrick Jefferson, who was Princess Diana's private secretary, is convinced now that she went to her grave thinking he'd betrayed her. I'm joined now by Di Davis, who's a former chief superintendent with the Metropolitan Police and did head the Royal Protection Squad. Di, this extraordinary woman, here we are again, we're still reading stories on our front pages about Princess Diana, and this is yet more evidence that Martin Bashir used the most appalling techniques to persuade her to do the interview at a time when you know she was very vulnerable. Well, it is an appalling travesty of justice that, uh, in my opinion, that this man is not facing criminal charges. It beggars belief, having had the judge-led inquiry, which I was against from the outset. I said it should be a police inquiry, and then followed up by any civil factor. But the BBC, uh, unlike most of us, were allowed to appoint a judge, eminent though he undoubtedly is, but even his own summing up praised the evidence given by her brother and dismissed Bashir uh, as a forger. It just beggars belief and nobody has explained properly to me why the Metropolitan Police yet again have decided that there is no evidence to proceed against him or even start a criminal inquiry. I just don't understand it. And the BBC, they've now agreed to pay £100,000 compensation for the untruths which... Bashir created with Diana because he would have known that Patrick Jefferson would have been implacably opposed to the Panorama interview conducted under the noses of the royal family in Kensington Palace. Well, you're quite right. And as he rightly says, and I concur, uh, she went to her grave thinking this man and others, uh, including some of my former officers, uh, betrayed her. And that's a, an astonishing uh, factor, which uh, is a blight on the BBC. And yet again, uh, they've paid out three quarters of a million to the man who created these forgeries, 750,000 odd, as I understand it. And here we are now, and I've no doubt they're covered by some kind of indemnity insurance, but that has to be paid for. Uh, and why are... Uh, these other individuals who aided and abetted him, counseled or procured him to commit offences. Why are they not being investigated? I say again, it beggars belief. And somebody, and I'd like to know who, uh, is deciding in their wisdom this does not warrant an investigation yet again. Now, you knew Patrick Jefferson. He was devoted to Diana. He was a very good private secretary. Uh, and he, it's a measure of the man that he's not going to personally profit from the £100,000. He's donated the entire amount to a South Wales Children's Hospital, which was the last charity patronage he set up for Diana. Yes, uh, it shows the calibre of this man vis-à-vis the calibre of Martin Bashir, who, as I understand, is still drawing his pension from the BBC. Uh, the, the, the difference is like chalk and cheese, isn't it? What a difference in the character of an individual who has been much maligned by some. And I'm, I'm glad that at least he's had some recognition of, of that he was a loyal and faithful servant. I mean, she could be a very difficult individual and and he survived for eight years and and all tribute to him 
I just finally, we should remind people, shouldn't we, uh, Di, that the former Master of the Rolls, Lord Dyson, in that official investigation into the Bashir scoop said he charmed, lied and forged his way to a global scoop. And as you say, the police still are taking no action. Well, I, I, I'd like to know who in their wisdom decided, because I always say, unless you investigate, and here you have a prima facie case, but the other point I would say is Dyson conducted it under civil uh, law. Everyone was uh, given huge opportunity to bring along solicitors. They were paid for by and given legal advice. It wasn't a police inquiry. And what people need to understand is there's a huge difference if somebody, like the number 10 inquiry, um, if somebody initially conducts a civil, you can't always use the evidence that you have in a criminal case. So it was about faith. And I still maintain in my humble opinion, this was about faith. And, and no doubt Lord Dyson did his utmost and, and produced, uh, obviously, uh, the caliber of the man, a report which is worthy. But it's not a police report and it's not a police investigation. All right, that's Di Davis, former chief superintendent with the Metropolitan Police and was the head of the Royal Protection Squad. Thanks so much for joining us. Deputy sports editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest sports news. It's the big rugby tournament this weekend. Is it this weekend, Matt? It is, yes. It's tomorrow. It's the climax of Six Nations. Eddie Jones, big gamble. What's he gambling on? Well, he's made some very interesting selections in the England team uh, that's going to take on France in Paris tomorrow. Uh, he's um, So, basically, England desperately need to get a win in this game to uh, otherwise they're going to sort of finish fourth or fifth again in the Six Nations. It feels like they're going backwards. So he's brought in George Furbank at fullback and he's moved Freddie Stewart, who had been playing fullback, out to the wing. Now they're two uh, very big calls. Stewart hasn't played on the wing at all during the Six Nations. He's been strictly at fullback and Furbank hasn't played a minute of rugby in these Six Nations. So um, out of nowhere, he's made two massive selection calls. Now, they look like gambles on paper. If England are blown away tonight by a rampant France team who are on the verge of, um, of a Grand Slam, and their first Grand Slam actually uh, since 2010, then it's going to be a very bad look for Eddie Jones and the England team indeed. And it sort of thinks, all this talk of building to the next World Cup, which is Eddie's mantra, this, if this selection goes badly wrong, it feels like we're taking one step forward and two steps backward as a team. So there's a lot of pressure on Eddie Jones. Um, we've talked about it before, about whether he could possibly lose his job before next year's World Cup. Well, you know, if it goes terribly wrong in Paris tomorrow, and there's lots of French celebrations going on at the end, then there will be lots of people looking at Eddie Jones, asking if he is the right man to take this England team through to next year's World Cup. Now, Stokes, he's doing, doing, doing the Lord's work in the West Indies. He is. He's back. Um, he... You'll remember that last summer he took some time out because uh, he was feeling the stresses and the strains. And then he came back to the Ashes. And by his own words, he felt that he underperformed during the Ashes. Well, he's not alone there. The whole England team pretty much underperformed as they lost 4-0. But he, um, he felt that he didn't give his all. He felt that he wasn't quite in the right place and he wasn't fit enough. Well, he certainly looks fit now. And he smashed a, uh, a, a sensational century yesterday uh, in quick time as well. There's 100. Uh, 20 off about the same amount of balls, which gave England, uh, bought England some time in this test match uh, because the wicket looks like the sort of wicket where you need lots of time to bowl the opposition out. So it was a great, it was a great inning, but more than just 
the innings, it was the manner of the innings, it was the good old Stokes really taking the attack to the opposition. So it was good to see, and now England are trying to push and take advantage of what he did and try and push towards victory in this second test. Just finally, Matt, we talked about Frank Lampard, the only footballer I've ever heard of, really, or the only one I'd recognise if I bumped into him in the street. Struggling at Everton would be the first time Everton have gone down to the lower division probably in their history, but they won last night albeit in the ninth minute of extra time. Yeah, it was the 99th minute. So, um, yeah, an amazing game, really. It was nil-nil up until the 99th minute, but that doesn't really do it justice, justice, because there was all sorts of drama, um, including um, a uh, pitch invader tying himself to one of the posts. One of those Extinction Rebellion idiots, wasn't it? Yeah, we took a good what. Good long time to get him off the uh, off the post. Should have left him there. <laughs> well, he might have done it, except he would have probably got in the way. Um, then Everton had a player sent off. Um, and then in the 99th minute, as you say, Alex Iwobi grabbed this very, very important, uh, important goal that takes Everton three points clear of the relegation zone and buys Lampard uh, a bit more time. But um, it, was, uh, it was so exciting that Lampard even broke his hand uh, broke a bone in his hand in the celebrations he got so carried away so his hand was looking swollen and painful after the game but uh, I think he'd swap that for the three points he got yeah was it vir- must have been virtually the last kick of the match was it Matt yeah well it was, it was actually 14 minutes of injury time because of this fella strapping himself to the post so there was a, still a sort of four or five minutes of um, of uh, nervous time to go uh, in the game for Lampard and Everton and all their fans but the atmosphere at the end was amazing you know you could see what it meant to the fans uh, to get this win which has been so long coming so um, but you know that doesn't mean they're out of it they've got a difficult run still they've got lots of tricky fixtures to come um, and they've got Burnley and Watford particularly you know trying to hunt them down so it's a good win but it doesn't mean they're safe Right that's Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood thanks for joining us All right, so it's Mother's Day next weekend, the perfect time to celebrate all that mums do for their children. A new survey has polled mums to find out what they think about the job of parenting, with some saying it's the best job in the world, while others say, actually, it's much harder than they expected. Joining me now is mum and broadcaster, of course, Jenny Powell. And Jenny, your mum to Constance, who's 21, and Pollyanna, 13. Was it tougher than you thought being a mum? Oh, Andrew, well, there's a question. <laughs> um, I think, uh, obviously, first time round as a mum, things were, you know, it all comes with a bit of a, 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 bit of a shock. Um, and you think, you know, you look at your mum and how well they're doing, and my mum was just brilliant, and she made it look so easy. And then I thought, oh, well, this is going to be fine. But, yeah, when it actually came to being a mum for the first time round, it was, uh, yeah, quite a shock. So... I do get it. I mean, the research that was done by One for All Gift Cards um, actually came out with the fact that um, only 18% of British women thought that the best job in the world was being a mum. And that really surprised me. For me, looking back, um, it's been tough for some reasons. You know, like I got divorced and I had an eight-year-old and, you know, my, my youngest was only like 12, 12 weeks old. So, you know, in that respect, it was tough. Um, and that was the downside. But certainly now I'd say it's definitely the best job in the world, Andrew. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I think a lot of women would say the same thing, uh, Jenny, wouldn't they? One of the big problems is you just, you're on the go the whole time and there's never enough time to have a good sleep. Oh, oh, that is so true. I mean, obviously I've got older kids now, but I do remember that whole sort of sleep deprivation thing. Um, and you don't really understand what it's like until it happens. I mean, again, 
sort of 43 percent of mums were saying you know that it was so difficult for them to learn to just cope with the constant lack of sleep they really struggled with it um and it's uh, something we all take for granted sleep but it's that thing where you've got no choice you can't actually turn a baby off and say listen once I've, I've got my you know my eight hours in I'm going to be okay it's just not happening um, and you get into this cycle where, you know, you're just exhausted. And because you're overtired, you don't sleep um, as well. And um, it really is quite quite a learning curve, the whole experience. But again, still the best job in the world for me. And every single bit of the sort of downside of things is, is always worth it in the end, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. And there's that lovely finding in the survey, Jenny, saying 69% of mums say they never knew how much they could love another person that's how much joy the children bring oh Andrew yeah I've got such a story about that as well because first of all it is true I think it, if you try to describe some to somebody what it's like the feeling you get um when you first have a, a child it's just overwhelming I think it's one of those it's the most fulfilling most satisfying feeling but it, it is quite overwhelming and just so full of love and I remember doing an interview for one of the magazines, you know, about, oh, you know, Jenny Powell's first baby, blah, blah, blah. And I actually said, I said, um, and I'm laughing still, and I'm sure you will as well. I, I was like, I just couldn't have another child because I, I haven't got enough love left, uh, you know. <laughs> I was gushing away like that. must have been the hormones. Yeah. But it was the feeling of, like, I have no love left. And it's so funny because I left an eight-year-old, an eight-year dad so now Pollyanna, my youngest, you know, she looks through all the magazines I've kept along the, over the years. And she's like, Mum, I just read that article when you had Connie. And uh, it says that you couldn't love another child. What about me? How funny. That's very funny. Now, Mother's Day, um, do your children buy you something, Jenny? Or perhaps when they were younger, they made something for you. What would be the, what is the ideal Mother's Day gift? Oh, well, I've already had it. I had it last year, actually. And it was Pollyanna. So she's quite, I'm quite sort of like, I don't know, it's because I've come from children's TV or something, but I'm always encouraging to do make and do's, you know, do this, do that. And last year, she came up with the best Mother's Day present so far. And that was, she got a jam jar, decorated it a bit, and then she wrote little slips on little slips of paper. Um, I think it was 28 reasons why I love you as a mum. And so each day for a month, I could pick out one of these reasons why I was supposedly a great mum. And I've still got it. And some days when I'm feeling like I'm really inadequate as a mother, I'll go into the jar and I'll say, no, 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 Pollyanna's definitely got a reason in here why I'm a great mum. Um, so that for me is, is the perfect gift, I have to say. Well, um, yeah, and always will be. <laughs> lovely. What a lovely story, Jenny. That's, uh, that's proud mum and broadcaster Jenny Powell. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm very sad to say this is the last Andrew Pierce show, at least for now. I want to thank you very much for listening for the last two and a half years. It's been a pleasure for me. I hope it has for you. Thanks for coming along with me. Don't forget you can read me in the Daily Mail and I'll be back, as somebody once said. 